Hi, everyone. This is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. All right, welcome back again to another episode of DC Power Hour. And we're ready to dive into another timely topic these days. And with it being basically about a one-year anniversary from the Texas power outage uh, last February, we wanted to really take a deeper look at how extreme weather and other um, stresses that are put on the infrastructure of the power grid, how those things are are affecting um, our ability to be able to um, handle these problems now and in the future as these as these changes continue to increase. So we've got our panel of experts here. We've got George and Alan, and I've got Andrew and Eric from Eagle Eye as well. And so uh, I want to get their perspectives on really a range of topics about is our power grid infrastructure ready and able to handle the the changes that we're seeing in the the climate and and the weather and all these other instances that are occurring in our ever-changing world so i'll turn it over to you guys do you want me to start it then alan so yeah go here go ahead george okay i i well uh, i'll make my own comment to start with here and that is uh, i i simply don't believe we are uh because there is some and and that's not a negative against the physical utilities themselves, but the uh, the overall management of the uh, utility side of the supply is governed by politicians, and none of them uh, are willing uh, to do anything that uh, is actually required in order to improve the situation. That's my concern. There's this. There's almost. It seems to me as a. Uh, a blanket disbelief that uh, the weather has changed. No matter how bad it becomes, it's a hundred years occurrence. It's just maybe it's because I'm getting old, but the hundred years seems to be getting shorter. And uh, I, I know that uh, because of COVID, I haven't been out in the field as much as I used to be. So I'm going to rely on Eric because he's the he's the guy that's out there with the utilities on a consistent basis and. Um, how do you feel they themselves feel about it, Eric? They, uh, you know, do they have any confidence, or are they is it uh, are they still a bit concerned about what's going on? I think it's a mass concern for for all of them. I mean, I think everybody can acknowledge that weather patterns dramatically change. I mean, I look at my home state in Nebraska; we had a tornado touchdown in December. That's just unheard of. So you're, you're talking some of these catastrophic catastrophic events, whether it's hurricanes, floodings, or fires. You look at our grid protection, there's nothing you can do against stuff like that. Now, what happened in Texas with freezing, I, I think there's maintenance that could have been done, but the anticipation that you hear a lot of these different theories of, oh, it's a 100-year flood, or we haven't seen temperatures like this in over 100 years, well, now that seems all too common these days. So preparation needs to be done on a lot of those ends, whether you're burying your lines or getting your uh, substations and transmissions prepared for hard frost. And I think actually they want to do that. But I look at the utility world and even just with compliance, meaning compliance, it's not like they're going above and beyond with compliance. It's always been a very reactive 
approach to anything maintenance where they're just going to be doing the bare limit. And I think there's a lot of things tied to that. It's, it's lack of personnel, it's lack of funding. And it's kind of like, okay, well, we'll address it after the math. So I know when we were down at BatCon, they had a pretty good presentation on what happened in Texas. And it seemed like last year they took all these measures to ensure that it can't happen again. So it's almost like they're not going to issue out additional funding to these utilities to do this prevention until after it happens. And that's just been kind of the utility approach on a lot of different things. I read an article that David forwarded to Alan and I earlier today. Uh, I got through most of it before we started this session. But um, it appears from that that, in fact, very little has actually been done in Texas to, uh, to move things ahead. They're still hoping that it was a 100-year event. And I hope for Andrew, who's just moved to the Austin area, that uh, he, doesn't get, uh, he doesn't find himself at the sharp end of it. But you're telling me there is uh, sleet in the weather at the present moment, Andrew. Yeah, absolutely. As I sit here, there's uh, wind and sleet, and it's pretty interesting, too. I mean, you know, being in the Austin area, there's a continual growth. You know, the Gigafactory is right outside of Austin. It's said to be the second largest and potentially even what will become the largest manufacturing facility in the United States. So the amount of power draw, data draw, and, and some of the different things going on there. And then you have several tech giants moving into the region and continuing this uh, large boom. So I'm interested to see how all that would play out. Uh, Not only is, are are we talking about the actual pre-built electrical grid that they have here, but there's a lot more demand starting to come upstream as people continue to pour in from other states into this region. Well, you know, in my opinion, uh, things haven't improved. We've got what we've got coming. Uh, really, it's a perfect storm when you think about it. Uh, we, we've got an aging infrastructure, really aging infrastructure. We've got aging power plants. Money hasn't been spent. We have uh, changing weather patterns. We also have a drive to rely more and more on renewable energy. And the more that politicians talk and a lot of greenwash, out there in the public, but the fact, plain fact is that our electric demand is growing. As Andrew says, typical example lost, you know, all these factories coming up, all relying on electricity. Electric vehicles, all relying on electricity. So we have aging infrastructure, a reluctance to spend money on new facilities, new generating facilities that are not green. And uh, the fact that the reliability on the renewables, mainly wind and solar, is, is so oversold at the moment. And, you know, I was just wondering the other day that a massive uh, volcano in the South Pacific, dust clouds from that are still circling the earth. Uh, you know, an event like that can have a great effect on solar power. So, you know, we're in a hiding to nothing, basically. And George is 100% right. Politicians are deriving it at the moment. Uh, they'll only go with what gives them the most bang for their buck and gives them the most bucks. But uh, we have a real problem. And the only way we can 
solve that problem is to stand back, look and see what the problems are. You know, do we need to, we have a whole thing we haven't talked about yet, and that's uh, the vulnerability of the not only of the electric utility distribution, but also oil, gas, as demonstrated in Virginia and the Northeast last year when the uh, the uh, controls were taken over. And, uh, you know, where do we go from here? I'm glad that I'm, I'm aging as well as the infrastructure because I'd hate to be around 10, 20 years when the whole thing collapses. Well, uh, Alan, I, I hope that it's not going to collapse. Um, you know, I... I still live in a the belief that um, some people will get it right, and uh, but I think the, the the big thing is that we we've got to understand that we can't we can't expand and grow our infrastructure to support our electrical demands unless we install more and more uh, this uh, both distribution and uh, generation and. As you said, it doesn't matter how much um, solar power we put in there. Uh, your example of the uh, explosion that happened out on, on, the, on the ocean and the amount of dust that has generated, anything that's in its path, that's that the, the generation on that, all those panels are going to have to be cleaned. And when you see some of the pictures, can you just imagine trying to find people to go out and clean those panels. So you're not about it. But I, I think the problem at the present moment appears to be, and uh, Eric can uh, talk to me about this in a little bit a minute, but it seems to be that all we are ever doing is actually simply putting a Band-Aid onto everything. We're not actually fixing the root cause. Uh, what do you say to that? I agree. I think it's always been our approach. It's just reactive. Get by with what you can with minimal amount of spent. I mean, it's, it's always there. You know, you look at the generation plants and I, I think, didn't they just pass over in Europe that looking at natural gas generation is now considered green. And I know Germany is, is kind of taking that on the chin a little bit because I think they closed a lot of those generation plants. I know they took down their coal plants and I think they shut down their nuclear plants too. Right. Yes, they did. And so they're massively struggling now. And then lo and behold, oh, wait, natural gas is fine. So now, you know, what's the cost of of trying to get some of these generation plants back up and running? Well, the other problem that Germany has is that they are totally reliant on Russia for a lot of their gas, for the existing gas generators they still have running. And as we know, the the political state between Russia and the rest of the world and, and Europe and and the U.S. is not good at the present moment. And, um, you know, what will Germany do if, it, if the, something happens and uh, everybody else tries to uh, go against Russia and Germany sits there and waits for them to turn the gas off? Right. And you look at, you know, I, my big issue with renewables, too, is how much renewables that are actually being manufactured out of the country. I think most of our solar stuff comes from China, correct? Oh, yep. Yeah, I would say so, yes. Almost certainly. they they. Uh, Alan and I know a little bit about that because uh, we actually had at one point a uh, panel facility here in uh, in Frederick, Maryland. Solar, it was originally SolarX and then it went to become BP Solar 
and they were looking to expand. In fact, they started building a new building to to manufacture um, panels in Frederick. And when the uh, when the boom started and the amount of stuff that was coming in from China, they simply couldn't make it uh, financially viable. So they they closed the whole place down and scrapped it all. Yeah, Eric's right. I I don't think there's one solar panel manufacturer in the United States. It's just a little bit like light bulbs. You know, many light bulbs are made in the United States. No, hardly any, but not only in the solar, but solar panels. But uh, look at the wind turbines. You know, most of those turbine blades are coming in from Germany or other European countries. I don't know about the turbines themselves. Uh, but anyway, a lot of times it's pie in the sky, people thinking that we can supplement the grid, uh, demand of the grid, uh, by renewables having closed down or closing down uh, coal plants and uh, even wood-fired plants. You know, to me, uh, you talk about renewables. Well, to me, wood is a renewable Mm -hmm. renewable source. You know, we just have to wait a long time for the trees to grow back again. But uh, I think it's just, it's, it's ludicrous to think that we can supply more electricity, more gas, uh, natural gas, and same time uh, to, to, dem- to meet the increasing demand uh, the way we're going about it at the moment. But what I'd like to get Eric's opinion on here, since he's on the coal face, have you noticed like I had Eric in the past when I used to go and visit these plants? A lot of them are in bad condition. I- I'm talking about the battery backup side of them. In the generating stations and the and the substations, you know, a lot of them uh, are not being maintained properly, mainly because of financial engineering. You get some guy who's used to working on a turbine. Now he said, "Oh, you're going to maintain the battery," and uh, they're going, "What?" So anyway, I'd like to get Eric's perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's um, you know, in the utility markets, I mean, it's. It's far too common when you walk into a DC room and, and see the conditions and, and there's just so many check boxes that you hit walking into these rooms. I mean, just the environment itself, the temperature control is not there. The the battery systems, you know, if it's a flooded system, usually typically the water levels are, are and then just reaching out to the person to try to get some insight, some, you know, some trend data. Let me see what kind of maintenance has been done. And it's just, it's like a deer staring in the headlights. It's just not there. You can't necessarily blame the personnel because, Alan, you're 100% right. This is almost kind of like something thrown on their plate that's not in their field of expertise. And you look at um, most utility markets, again, we will highlight again, these utility companies are so short-staffed now. And again, it almost seems like that's always a continued trend for them is less employees, less employees, less employees. Well, now you're, you're talking, you could have two, three battery technicians for an entire company that has couple thousand substations. I mean, how are you going to maintain those DC systems? Now, nice with Eagle Eye, we can provide monitoring systems, but again, what's being utilized for that information? You could have all this information coming back to you, but but who's looking at it? I mean, we've talked to a couple of utility companies who have really expressed an interest of, can you evaluate our, our data? Can you take care of our data to help us be more proactive? But, you know, I've had some interesting conversations over the last month of, of you, a utility company 
literally saying we we don't have any scheduled battery change outs it's all emergency and that's just absolutely fascinates me because it's like you know what's the cost that can come at that you know what what is you know is it beneficial but it, it's almost like they can't get out ahead of it and there's a lot of things that fall in place it's lack of personnel it's lack of funding and to to look at a large utility scale company who has a lot of these dc systems they're so far be gone like gone i, I had a really good uh, water company that I used to dealt with and they had 25 year old batteries in there and they were completely shot they've been shot for 10 years but they didn't know that they don't have the funding for it you know we i've talked to multiple utility companies and you can walk in there and say your battery's done it's, it's less than 50 percent. okay well i gotta wait two years that's when i can get budgets cleared so it's i've seen this more time than not in now you talk like in the uh, oil and gas industry they're not under the gun of like a NERC compliance. So what's being pressed for them? It's just kind of like, it's always a knee jerk reaction to where it's like the battery has got to get in a catastrophic state, a complete 100% fail mode for, for them to move on it. And there's just a lot that feeds into funding. It's money, it's personnel, it's lack of education. It's, it's all across the board. Yes. Yeah, so you, you mentioned NERC. If I can jump in here after the, uh, North Great Northeast blackout. I forget when it was, but uh, I know where I was at the time. But anyway, that's made uh, NERC, which is a North American Electrical Reliability Council, uh, take a hard look at things, and say, and they said, well, you know, the system is not being maintained, so we're going to come out with this document, PRC zero zero five, and uh, which will became un- mandatory, and this is what you will do. This is how you, you will m- maintain your systems, including the battery backup systems. And if you don't do it, we, we're going to fine you. Okay? Well, that doesn't seem to be working very well uh, because places I go in, and, uh, and you've obviously grown on a day-to-day basis, Eric. You know, it's just a mess. So, you know, are regulations enough? If regulations you're going to have regulations, you need to enforce them. And George, I'd like you to talk a little bit about, you know a lot about PRC 005 than I do uh, from your some of your daily work. So maybe you can comment on that, George. Oh, I guess you're absolutely right. Uh, PRC 005 was um, definitely, a, at every level, a compromised document. It was put together by a team of people from the industry, which I don't disagree with at all, because at least you have uh, knowledge, you know, working knowledge on, on the committees rather than uh, financial knowledge. But uh, one of the challenges is that, uh, as one of the gentlemen said to me, was that um, he said, well, you know, we used to do our, our maintenance, our battery maintenance every year. He said, but we now do it every 18 months. Because management looked at PRC 005 and they basically said, we don't, you know, you only have to take these readings every 18 months. So we're not going to do it every year now, which was exactly the opposite to what the objective was. I think one of the, the, the biggest problems we have is, and you and I got involved a little bit in this uh, about a year ago when we were looking at trying to write an article about it, but the whole concept of uh, return on investment, ROI. And when you look at uh, 
ROI, it, it never takes into account what happens if there's a failure. It's all about, is there going to be more profit by doing this? And I think that's that's probably the, the first major thing we need to get changed is that people need to start looking at the return on investment will be the improvement in reliability and uh, at less cost and loss of service. You know, it, but but that is going to take a major rethink within the financial industry. It's as simple as that. They they just do not think that way at all. Uh, so that that's, that's going to be interesting. But uh, yeah, I mean, PRC doesn't use PRC five doesn't actually work at all. I would agree with that as well, George. And and my thoughts too with that and what you guys were talking about, like the regulatory and and customers not maintaining their systems properly is. I think that's only going to get worse. One, because I think renewables are going to be a bigger part of the day-to-day existence, and they're going to carry a lot of the load during the day. And I think what a lot of these utilities and these generation plants are going to move into is they're going to, a lot more of them are going to be becoming peaker plants. And not just peaker plants, but peaker plants that are working the night shift, whenever wind doesn't blow as hard, whenever the sun isn't out. And that's really where they're going to really fill the demand in between as renewables come online more. And I think as more and more facilities become not 24-7 and just peaker add-on, they're going to do less and less of the battery maintenance, and that knowledge is going to be lost even more. Um, And and I don't know where their budgets are going to be. And I think, you know, going back, looking at Texas, I think part of that, of what happened to them, is something along those same lines. It's all privatized, like you said. So everything comes down to the ROI. There's no real regu- regulation in there there's no there's like uh in the midwest there there's an organization called miss and it's really they're like the air traffic controller of all of the local utilities all of the different agencies and they see it as a big board and then they can contact you know whether it's alliant energy out of wisconsin or we energies out of that region or mid-american and they can fire up a plant and they can have that peaker plant up in 45 minutes and synchronized into the grid. Now, if something's going wrong and they're not maintaining different systems, well, you're going to have a lot more plants that can't synchronize and, and fail out. So that, that would be my biggest concern too when we talk about serviceability of clients. And I think who gets hurt in the end there? Well, we saw it here in Texas. We saw customers get billed $8,000, $12,000 because, yeah, if you want electricity and you flip your light switch on in a situation like that, well, they can give it to you, but they're charging you $1,000 a kilowatt hour. Um, so it can be insane for a customer that doesn't understand that when it comes down to the end. But I think regulation, because I try to wrap my head around like, okay, how, how do you avoid Texas again? How do you avoid that same instance? And I think looking back at what happened and looking at where we are right now, when we talk to customers, you don't avoid it. It just happens again. If it's, if a storm comes, it just happens again. Um, and they deal with it then. You, you make a good point, Andrew, about the, the peaker plants. And, and one of the challenges people are going to realize is that um, the, all the peaker plants at the present moment that are around, and every, you know, Alan and I, in fact, did some training for one of the large utilities at one point, and every one was at a peaker plant, basically. So I got to know a little bit more about them. And what you're talking about is 
they are all gas-fired because that's the only method of propulsion that they can get up to speed at that rate. And it's, the quickest ones to bring up are simply one gas turbine and a generator. And that's the fastest to come online. They can get the turbine up and they can get the generator running. If you want to become more efficient, they have these uh, basically dual plants where they use the exhaust gas from the turbine to actually run a steam generator that runs in parallel with the other one so that they actually get more energy out of the, the generating plant. But that takes considerably longer to bring up to speed. So, you know, it, it's we're not going to get away from gas as a primary source of it. We've got to learn how to use it. That's more to the point. And the other, but the other problem we have when we talk about, you know, Alan said, are the, uh, you know, is the fines working? Well, one of the biggest challenges I think they have is that quite simply the auditors they have out in the field are not battery experienced. Now, some of them, based on my feedback I'm getting from people, the friends I've made over the years in the industry, uh, yes, some of the, uh, the auditors are becoming and some of the utilities have had to rethink how they write their, uh, their maintenance plan because the auditors actually putting themselves out and learning more about batteries. But the majority of the auditors at the very start were all people, retired people from the industry, and they knew all about generation and they knew about distribution. But the battery was a, you know, they had never been trained on it. They didn't understand it. So that, that is, that's still a major problem that, uh, you know, the, the, the actual problems are not going to be recognized until such time as you have qualified auditors. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not a great lover of auditor because their only job is to find something wrong and then they can leave. And that's that unfortunately becomes uh, part of the process. You know, you've got to find something wrong and then you can quit. Well, that's not the, that's not the way to do auditing, unfortunately. The, uh, one, one of the things I read recently uh, touches on something Eric said is that down in ERCOT, the, uh, in, in Texas, uh, ERCOT Electrical Reliability Council of Texas, I believe it stands for, they are seriously understaffed. They're contributing utilities, so much so that uh, they're having to cut back on a lot of stuff. But one figure I saw was that they, had, uh, they were only 80 85% fully staffed. So that worries me. But uh, let me talk a little bit about some other problem I see, and then maybe we'll let you guys comment on it or jump in with your other ideas. One of the things in the United States is that it's different from Europe. Uh, Europe, the, the electrical reliability is a lot, lot superior. Not, not because they do things better, uh, not because they have better people, but a lot of the utilities are underground. Here we have a massive country, and all our transmission lines, most of them, everything's above ground and very susceptible to damage, whether it's wind, snow, lightning, whatever. So uh, the big answer, the uh, big thing to do would be you'll bury those, but it's just not practical. So that, as you see, is a Achilles heel at the moment. So I'd like somebody else might want to comment on that or give me their opinion on 
what they see as their Achilles heel. I'll, I'll start that one off, Alan, because, uh, yeah, it, it's, it shows up both on the uh, long-distance transmission, where the problems we have in California, that the, uh, the so little maintenance work being done that the, uh, the, the transmission lines become overloaded and they start to droop. And that's when part of the problem where the fires have come from. Mm-hmm. So now you're in the situation that as the uh, air conditioning load rises in the summer, they have to, when they, basically when the load on a certain circuit gets to a certain level, they have to drop subscribers in order to, uh, to minimise it so that the, the, the wires don't droop. So that, that's really a case of not doing the necessary planning ahead and, and maintenance or at least replacement, shall we say, of even heavier, heavier cables onto the existing uh, pylons. Uh, the problem in, the, in, in towns is, is the, uh, the overheads. Now, you and I both, uh, you live in or just outside Frederick, Maryland, and when we first came, when I first came there in '76, all the wiring in downtown Frederick was all overhead. You go down there today, and uh, you won't see a wire in place because, at one point, they made the decision to to bury everything. And I should think it, it's probably improved the reliability of downtown Frederick a lot. Doesn't do so much for us out in the, the suburbs, but uh, downtown, yes. Uh, but one of the I tell you a story about uh, I think it's uh, Florida Power and Light they have also they they are doing a lot of burying of cables in order to um, to cope with hurricanes because that's obviously a major problem and the um, there was a gentleman being interviewed on one of the news broadcasts this was a number of years ago and he was asked why even with their major burial plan were they still having as many power failures and he pointed out that there was one incident that had just happened where all the, the electrical cables were buried. Unfortunately, the tree next to where one of the major lines was buried got blown down, pulled the roots out, and ripped the cable out of the ground. And he, he just made the point that no matter how you do try to do things, that you will get caught out and things will happen. And you know, I think we've got to accept that. But yes, if we could get a lot more stuff underground. Uh, that would help at least help the local distribution. What's your comments on that? I agree. It, it's got to start somewhere. I mean, everything that we covered, it seems like there's a hundred different things that are going on that are all wrong. And I'm just, it's almost like the approach where there's just too much going on to where, like, where do you even begin? Like, what's important? Where do you start? And I feel like all we, over the last 20 years, is just our sole focus has been renewables all money, all funding, everything towards renewables. And it's, you know, what are what are the renewables doing? I mean, point in case when I was out yesterday and the wind was going too fast. So I can see in my vision, maybe a hundred different wind towers. None of them are spinning because the wind's too strong. But I also was curious, you know, a lot of that wind generation is feeding back into a substation where I was at. So what's that doing? You know, th- these were specced out at one point of, covering what this generation plant can do. Now you're adding more renewables into the mix. So it almost seems like you're overloading some of these substations to, to the max. And then you, you start throwing in different, you know, burying the wiring and, and trying to do these things. It just almost seems like we need to have a plan of action, but a plan 
plan of action has always been just throw more money at renewables. Don't improve, don't improve on the infrastructure. And I, I think we just really need to have a really mapped out way of where do we start? What's, what's priority? What's the top that we need to address that? You're entirely right, Eric. And just sitting here thinking reminds me of the, uh, of the development of the interstate highways, you know, back in the forties and fifties and sixties, there were no interstate highways, but they had to build the interstates. Thanks to, thanks to Eisenhower, you had to build the interstates because the existing roads couldn't cope with the traffic. And that's what we got here. You know, we've got an aging distribution system, got aging roads. So we need to create something better like the interstate highways. And uh, even the interstate highways now are getting a little bit uh, overburdened, shall we say. Uh, part of the country I live in, near, the, near Washington, D.C., you know, we got what we affectionately know as the world's largest parking lot, and that's the uh, Washington Beltway. But anyway, we, that, that's something we need to look at. All boils down to foresight and money. Unfortunately, with the government, I don't think we have either. Doesn't matter which government's in power, we don't have either. So, what what do we do? You know, we uh, put out the help sign, you know, and say, "Sony, solve our problem." But uh, do we need a Elon Musk, uh, something like that? I don't know what the answer is. If I did, I'd be a rich man. Well, it's just like everything else; it almost needs to fail first before we start really looking at solutions. Unfortunately, I I believe at this moment we have failure right now. On uh, all levels, you know, Alan was talking about uh, the interstate highway. A perfect example of how things can go wrong uh, happened a couple of weeks ago just outside Washington, D.C., where Interstate 95 got closed down for almost 24 hours. And there were cars piled up on the side of the road, couldn't move. because. And one of the reasons why? Because they had gone completely over to saline solution as the method of uh, pre-treating the roads, only we got a major rainstorm before the snow started. And completely, they, they, in fact, they didn't do it because they knew the rain was coming. But, you know, if they, if they pre-treated the roads in the way they were all set up to do, it wouldn't have worked anyway because, and then they didn't have the vehicle. They couldn't actually get the trucks onto, the, there was so much ice on the road they couldn't get the trucks on there to start clearing it. That was part of the problem. So, you know, we're talking about major, major problems all over. But to me, I think you're right. We've got to start someplace. And it's uh, in the end, it's going to be the reliability of our electric supply because at least the one, the one thing that we have discovered is that uh, a lot of the jobs can be done from home. And that 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 is a that's a certain advantage in in one point in that we actually distribute the electrical requirements much wider than it does from a large city where everything is in one place and you need a you know if you lose one generating plant then you've lost a lot so there's uh, you know th- there needs to be some thinking and I'm not uh, a few years ago I'd have probably used the term out of the box thinking but. Uh, that's it's, that's not the answer today. We we need some thinking inside the box, but logical thinking, not something that makes a headline. 
That's the problem we get at the present moment. All the answers have got to be a headline to make somebody look good. Well, well as you know, I've been a proponent for uh, uh, micro-nuclear plants for quite, quite a while, you know, that serve a, you know, you, you move the power source closer to the end user. And this is a perfect good example of that. They're actually doing this in Europe at the moment. These micro-nuclear plants, they're extremely safe. Uh, I think George used an example a while back is that every uh, nuclear submarine we've got, we've got, but also around the world, perfectly safe. Been operating for years and years and years. So there's a lot of scare tactics being put out about uh, these nukes. And I think, uh, I think that's the way of the future. You know, you don't have these long, long haul transmission lines from a generating plant back in the boonies. A lot of them where I live in this uh, area, they're built in uh, uh, West Virginia, Virginia, near the coal plants, because that's what they were designed for at the time. Some of the ones in Southern Virginia, the coal burning plants were converted to wood burning plants because they'll have a lot of wood there. And they were using actually wood that was the bark of the trees, you know, taking it from the uh, wood, wood, the, the mills and using that. And now they start to shut that down. So, you know, it's a cascading effect. But I think the only answer is to have micro uh, nuclear plants dotted around the country. And, uh, you know, that solves two problems. One, it makes up the shortfall uh, from what we're little bit we're going to be able to generate from uh, renewables, but it also cuts out the uh, long vulnerability of the transmission lines. One thing I've always been curious, and you just, I just, maybe it's just me, why isn't there more of a push for hydro? I know it's not applicable all around, but to me, that just seems such a great way that checks all the boxes off. Yeah, we're talking about alternative energy here, Eric, and you're, you're right, hydro, uh, Hydro supplies quite a lot of our power, right. uh, but it depends where you live, uh, what part of the country you are. But that this great promise being shown at the moment, maybe we'll, this is a subject for a completely different podcast on, uh, on alternative energy, but uh, this great promise being showing on uh, tidal uh, generation, which is pretty similar right. uh, for storing energy. Uh, I read an article a couple of days ago about uh, uh, putting huge balloons in the seabed and uh, they actually pump pump uh, water in there during the day and then at night they they let yeah. the water come out again which essentially operating a hydro but uh, there's a lot of promise in other things uh, hydro in my opinion uh, tidal based highway, uh, hydro great promise but it's not an answer just as uh, I, I know some of these uh, other schemes are, are not really an answer. I don't think even solar is an answer, quite honestly. No. I don't think wind is an answer, but uh, I think the only answer, and I think we're going to be forced there, is these um, micro hydro, uh, micro nuclear plants, which can be brought online, by the way, very, very quickly. And what do I mean about six years, where it takes about 10 to 15 years to bring in a fully fledged uh, nuke plant? I think the, the, the one thing that uh, I, I saw, about, there's a lot of work being done at the present moment on the, this idea of uh, micronets, where uh, 
you are basically self-contained generation capability, which takes some of the load off the uh, the actual utility. But the problem I can see with that is that that takes those type of uh, products take a lot more maintenance than uh, than people perhaps people realize. Uh, Andrew and I were uh, working at, on a on a uh, we had a Android a request from a potential customer about basically testing the batteries on on one of these uh, uh, micro plants, and and one of the problems that appeared was that this uh, it had been put in with uh, by a large company and with the Chinese batteries, but when we asked about why they couldn't go and talk to the original developer of the system, it was more or less well no they don't want to know anything about us. And when I read up a little bit about the project, it turns out it was uh, it was funded by the government to to put this in, and, and clearly the company that won the contract, uh, once they put it in, they just walked away from it, and you know that's uh, it, it comes to this back we, we we lack the expertise at the ground level to do a lot of this stuff, you know we, we you can come you can have engineering groups and they'll sit there and come up with the most wonderful ideas, but. Unfortunately, none of them have ever been in the field to actually do any work or maintenance or anything like that, and you end up with some of the most ridiculous configurations that you simply can't do maintenance on. I remember at one point in my career working on a, on a project, and uh, when I first seen the basically the chassis that had been assembled to do it, uh, the screws were minute. And I questioned the draftsman why he used those small, so small screws because you know they didn't have the holding power or anything else. And it was well, they're cheaper, and and that, that, that a lot of that is again because the people that are doing these jobs haven't ever been out there and worked and understood what's going on, and that's probably one of the biggest problems we have today. The uh, one of the uh, things that's a hot topic at the moment has got to do with. Uh, the subject matter today is energy storage. More and more, they're looking upon uh, energy storage for not only to meet uh, peak demand, but also load leveling. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts on it, it in theory, it, work, it should work well. It, it, it's something you can do, but you're going to put a lot of batteries in there, and batteries cost money. They also use up valuable resources that have to be uh, mine because basically all batteries use the anodes and the cathodes are effectively a metal of some kind because that's the way the atomic system works. The only way you get free electrons is to have a conductor and they're all metal. So in order to build a lot of this stuff, you're going to be doing a lot more mining. And isn't that pollution? You know, it, it, it's people don't people don't look at it the whole way through. Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm starting to see an uptick. We we have a few customers that have reached out to me about energy storage, and it's it's uncharted waters for me. But I'm I'm the first one to want to get involved in any shape or form, just to kind of see how this comes together. I had a customer a few years ago that was looking at it that was going to be an unmanned generation plant, and they were going to use energy storage as 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 a quick start time that would give them. I can't remember. It was like two hours, but it allowed time to send personnel to the plant get the plant up and running and it seemed like it was a pretty good solution but it, it's so 
it's all relatively new, but I am seeing a lot of these big utility companies really give heavy consideration to some sort of form of energy source. But George, you're right. You're putting more batteries in there, mining resources. It's kind of the same thing with EVs. Everybody's very mindful when they're driving an EV that it's, you know, I'm driving a battery operated car. I, I'm, I'm helping out, but it's like, well, what's charging your car? You look at China and most of their power generation is, is all coal. So mm-hmm. you got a ton of EVs running around, but the EVs are being charged by coal plants. It's you're not getting out ahead of it. Well, the the the, the point is that coming back to what Andrew and I were working on a couple of weeks ago, uh, just the ideas of it is the customer wants to discharge all these batteries and test them because part of this microgrid was a, 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 a they wanted eight hours of storage to be able to uh, maintain certain certain parts of the, the complex. and uh, But they have no idea whether or not the batteries are actually capable of supporting that level. And as I say, that, that I come back to this idea that you do, when you hear that, you realise that the system was never designed with maintenance in mind. Otherwise, that should have been part of it, and it should have been part of the training for the staff on site. But unfortunately, and I speak from experience here, is that quite often when you add technology at the power level, you know, I I, I used to do a lot of battery monitoring with my previous employer and I did a lot of training for them because we would sell training. But the number of times the people I trained were actually the contractors that were finishing the system off so that they knew how to commission it. There was no member of the, there was not, not anybody from the customer there to learn about the system because they weren't they weren't involved until such time it was handed over. But you had to do the training when you did the installation because there wasn't any money in the budget to send you back to do it. That wasn't part of the price. So it had to be done on site. It's it's all that type of thing. That it, it's that mentality that gets us into the situation where we are today. Yeah, you you've you're right. Uh, I think we mentioned this right up front as Training, you know, is is lacking where it shouldn't be. But Andrew, have you noticed uh, when you've since you moved on to uh, the Lone Star State, have you? Uh, do people still talk about the blackout down there? You know, I haven't actually heard one person talk about any of that or the, any concern with it since I've been here. So I, I don't think it's present in anyone's mind when it comes to this, but. That's not unusual for anyone. I mean, if, if you think back, some of the things that we see every single year, every single year we see what's happening in California and Oregon and Washington with these wildfires. And they, it's just wildfire season. And they have huge outages. They have rolling blackouts. They have tons of this going on. And when I see it on the news, it's, it's nothing more than fire season. I mean, as sad as that is to, to think about, and I can only imagine the amount of lives that are impacted and getting worse and worse. You know, last year, Seattle had record heat and, you know, it was, it caught everyone there off guard. So I think it, it just, people are very adaptable and short term. And from what I've gotten from this conversation, there's so many complexities. And, you know, we had a couple different guests on in the past couple episodes, even Jack and Jason, uh, you know, some of what you guys were talking about earlier brought him to mind. Uh, when it comes about you know the transmission and getting getting power to the coast and 
you're talking about these microgrids, I really think that's a, a potential path forward because some of the biggest things we see is like the the not in my backyard movements and the federal government trying to work with state governments and local governments to get transmission lines to run state through you know state by state. You gotta cross all those different states and cities and people's property. So some of what you guys suggested here today is I think paths forward. And I know we talked about a lot of problems going on and and hopefully everyone will tune in next week when we solve all of those problems next week on our next episode. So tune back in for that one. But I think for for the day, I think we brought quite a few of the different paths and and kind of the problems that we're seeing out in the field and and how we, you know, just day to day living of what you see and and what's going on. And the Giga plant's not far from here. And I just think about, you know, the, the prime focus of that is for Tesla from from what I understand is is building semis and their truck and their, one of their cars. And when I think about the semis and what that's going to do to the grid over the next couple of years and what that's going to look like, it it's just such a, a hard thing to wrap our head around when we go in and talk to customers and see where they're at and, and what they're concerned about. And then you see the, all these other things starting to fire up and it's like, okay, that's not even a, a concern or a mindset for them. They're just trying to get by day to day and try to keep the power on and keep the grid running uh, every single day from what they're trying to do. I look at, I look at Texas and, and, and Andrew, it's just my speculation. Why are you not hearing anything? Because I think everybody took the preparation on their own hands. I can only imagine being a salesman that sells residential generators. How many people have gone out over this last year and just, you know, are you going to rely on the utilities to figure it out or are you going to go get a generator? I know what I do. Yeah, the, you're right, Eric. And uh, where I live, most, a lot of people have generators because they're on wet like me. They're on well and water. So you, you need to stand by. But uh, something uh, I think Andrew mentioned about the wildfires in California, that reminds me of another problem with the electrical grid we got at the moment, transmission system. One of the problems with the they had in California was that there wasn't uh, sufficient fire breaks cut because the environmentalists didn't want, you know, such and such an animal we've never heard of to be endangered. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'm conscious of these things as well, but the problem was that they weren't allowed to cut sufficient fire breaks or maintain those fire breaks. We have the same with the electrical transmission system. You've all seen the transmission, big transmission towers uh, coming down a mountain or something like that. Huge fire break either side. Well, now they're not maintaining these. They're cutting back on the maintenance. It's like a transmission. I look at, if I could look outside my window at the moment, it's pitch dark outside, but uh, I have a electrical overhead uh, line here. And I, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, at the end of the fall, uh, I had to go to call the local utility and say, hey, I have trees growing into this transmission line. When you come to take care of it, they used to come around once a year and do all the tree trimming. And they said, well, we can't get to it at the moment. We'll get to it as soon as we can. You still haven't been around. So when I have a storm, out, snowstorm like I've had the other night, I went out and looked, saw these ice forming on these branches and, uh, and the trees and the limbs practically resting on the utility line. I thought I was just waiting for, for something to happen. 
So these things are interrelated. It's just, uh, I think Eric said right up front, it's to do with money. You're just not spending the money. And how do we change that? It's no, it's no good voting one politician in and another one out because they follow the money as well for a different reason. I want to get your chainsaw and get out there. <laughs> oh, yeah. A little bit high up, Eric. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't think we've uh, solved too many of the problems, but we might have at least identified a few of them and, um, and maybe given ourselves some uh, new subjects for podcasts in the future. But uh, I, I, I think I'd like to thank everybody for taking part. These, um, these round tables that we've, we've now done, this is the second one we've done, I think they work very well. They, they, you know, we get a chance to uh, hear the viewpoints of different parts of the company. So and it demonstrates that even within a, a company, there can be different viewpoints between the people concerned. And it's a good chance to get some of these ideas aired. So, uh, Eric, you know, go and do your maintenance thing. We really appreciate it. Andrew, go and sell those battery monitors and uh, everything else down there. And, uh, you know, something in the future we might want to think about is, do we need to monitor the monitors? In other words, do we need to monitor the data that's been produced by the monitors? If I was a lot younger, I'd probably say, I'll head up that division. Uh, but both George and I know what to look for. But you give it to a normal person that's in charge of the, the battery system and say, look, uh, here's, the pro- here's the problem you have. You know, 513, that's the way it's going to be. That's life, folks. So, David, do you want to wrap this up? I or, think that's uh, good. Yeah, I mean, like you said, t- a ton of topics um, identified and appreciate we covered covered a lot. So, like Andrew said, tune in next time we'll we'll figure it all out, right? So, thanks a lot, guys. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.